when you're an entrepreneur, you are doing everything on your own. So you're doing all of these things. You, you are touching all of these things. You're like the archetypal micromanager, right? Even if you have people in your company, you're basically still kind of like really directly overseeing what they're doing. An executive, however, the person that you're hiring is entirely responsible for that domain. So if you hire a customer success manager and you're going to be able to build out his customer success department and you have five or six customer success reps underneath them, you cannot understand the details of that department to anywhere near as well as the customer success manager. And you must be able to give up that responsibility in order to succeed. However, entrepreneurs very rarely want to give up that responsibility. Hello world, welcome to another episode of Outside the Valley, the podcast where I interview remote startup leaders, remote work advocates, and CEOs of distributed teams who thrive outside of Silicon Valley. They share insight on what works and what doesn't so you can learn to do it right. This show is brought to you by ARC, the remote hiring platform that helps you hire remote software engineers and teams easily. I'm your host, Jovian Gautama. Now, this week on the show, we have Liam Martin, co-founder and CMO of Time Doctor and Staff.com. Liam is also the co-organizer of Running Remote Conference, the biggest conference on distribute teams and remote work. Now, in this episode, Liam shares his insights and experience on growing into an executive role by, here's what he said about it, by letting the entrepreneur inside you die. We also talked about having a special document to help your direct reports work with you better and the literal million dollar mistakes that Liam and his co-founder Rob made when running their company. We also talked about why he started the Running Remote Conference, the unspoken truths about running a large-scale offline event, and what's in store for next year's conference in Austin, Texas. So I went to the 2019 Running Remote Conference. It's an absolutely great event to learn from and network with the thought leaders of remote companies and other remote workers. Early bird tickets for next year's Running Remote Conference is still available. You can find the link on the show notes. Now, without further ado, here is Liam Martin. Here we go. Hey, Liam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Liam, um, it's really great having you here. Um, I was in the running remote conference with my uh, CEO and head of marketing this year. It was a great conference, and I'd love to talk uh, more about that later on. And But just to kick things off, can you share a bit more about uh, you and your background? Sure. So, um, human being located on planet Earth. More specifically, I am located in the Canadian part of planet Earth, uh, even more specifically in the French-Canadian part of Canada. Uh, I am 37 years old. I run two tech companies, or I co-founded two tech companies, timedoctor.com and staff.com, which are both tools to be able to facilitate remote work and uh, make remote employees more productive. And then we also, as you had mentioned, 
are uh, organizing a conference called Running Remote, which is the largest conference on building and scaling remote teams. We did the last two in Bali, which were very nice. This next year, we're going to be going to Austin, Texas, which I'm quite excited about. You mentioned that you're running uh, two companies. You're also co-organizing these uh, running remote conference. So when I was doing research uh, about you, so you wrote something that you mentioned there was a time in your life where you were like super stressed out uh, in running yeah. a company, working 12 to 15 hours a day. And mm -hmm. can you share a bit more mm -hmm. about this period? I, I personally want to know because this is usually um, a lot of people find um, liberation in remote work when they're, you know, when they're, they're busy with their uh, company and time, they just find this, um, the possibility to work remotely is super liberating. So I think that's kind of the same that happens to you. I'd love to learn more about what happened back then. Do you know of the Japanese uh, phenomenon slash word called karoshi? Oh, yeah. 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 It's a, um, Basically, it's overwork. death caused by overwork. And so I was on a classical kind of karoshi trajectory. Uh, I was working 12 to 15 hours a day. As you had mentioned, things were not going great. I remember it came to a climax for me <clears throat> where I had ended up chipping one of my, um, my back teeth, my molars, and I went into the dentist's office. And so you... You know, when you go to the dentist, you sit down in the big chair and they bring the big, bring light, they bring the big light up to your mouth and you can't really see anything. And I remember my dentist gasped. And it's never a good idea when a healthcare professional gasps when they're looking at you. Totally. And he literally said, Liam, which tooth are you talking about? Because you've literally chipped all of your teeth. He thought that I had pancreatic cancer. Um, because supposedly pancreatic cancer is one of the only things that will produce this type of result. But it was not pancreatic cancer. It was just from me stressing so much and grinding my teeth at night. So I was literally grinding my teeth apart. Wow. And so my dentist and therapist both told me I need to figure out something else to do or I am going to uh, be, in, be in serious trouble. Uh, I will not be able to survive. I was 27 or 8 at the time, I believe. So pretty significant for a 28-year-old to be, to be losing all of his teeth. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I realized that I needed to really kind of change my lifestyle and focus on what are the core components of productive work as opposed to being busy. So there's a big difference between being busy and being productive. And that was the big differentiator for me, which was, and probably a lot of people that are listening to this podcast right now, they think to themselves, well, man, if I could only put in an extra two hours of work, I would do X, Y, Z. I would be able to do this thing or that thing. But in the vast majority of cases, and I have the data to be able to back it up, those extra two hours probably will not produce any more results. And in some cases, it may actually reduce your overall output, which is somewhat counterintuitive, but um, is, is very true when you look at the data. So kind of boiling it down to that, I mean, for me, it was a, you can create any type of business 
to completely destroy your life. Um, just because right. you have a couple zeros in your bank account uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be a, a healthy and happy long-term person. And that's really what I think I want to be able to communicate to everyone is you don't need to, you don't need to work hard. You need to work smart. And there is actually a lot of like, we see in, in just kind of like today's culture, kind of like the hustle culture, right? Like put in your 12 hour days, put in your 15 hour days. Uh, that, I mean, they're wrong. I can very clearly show them that that is not the way to be able to build a business. Um, it boils down, unfortunately, to intelligence and opportunity. Those are really the two things that an entrepreneur needs. Right. And that is a, um, I don't want to say sad story, but I don't want to say sad story, but it is like a moment of awakening. Um, but so after that, what did you do? Like, when did you realize that finally it comes to you? Hey, I actually can work um, productively and smartly and taking care of myself and build a business with a, a remote team. So when did all of these click? So the first thing that I really needed to learn, and this was basically my transition from an entrepreneur to an executive. Okay. So I think about entrepreneurship is really zero to one. Uh, uh, if anyone has read Peter Thiel's Zero to One, it's a fantastic book on understanding the theoretical framework for building a startup, any type of startup, actually, tech or otherwise. And then being an executive is taking that one and turning it into a hundred. And those are actually two completely different skill sets. So in the zero to one perspective, you have to be the person that understands all of these different pieces and puts it into your head. So you have to understand the marketing, the sales, the software development. You have to understand customer success, all of these different variables, and then be able to come to uh, a product that someone actually wants to buy. You need to convince that first customer to buy something. Then you need to convince them to stay. Um, mm -hmm. These are all things that you need to do in that zero to one process. Yep. In the executive stage of your life, you need to actually give up all of those things. So you need to start delegating those responsibilities to different, basically, leaders inside of your organization. And you have to trust that they know what they're doing and that you um, can monitor that without really, I mean, and, and we can get into a little bit deeper of kind of like the, the different measures that at least we deploy Yep. in trying to understand whether or not someone is doing a good job and what course corrections we can give them earlier on so that they're not moving in a negative direction. But fundamentally, you're just saying you're flying the plane and, you know, and I'm, I'm stepping back. And that's quite scary, particularly for entrepreneurial personality types, which are generally quite egotistical. Yep. Um, there's a predisposition towards sociopathy in, uh, in, in, in entrepreneurship. You know, it's like the data is very clear. They are control freaks that like to talk about themselves constantly. Mm -hmm. So if that's you, if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, yeah, I kind of, I am egotistical and I like to talk about myself all the time. Um, kind of almost like, and I don't want to kind of work on this for the American audience, but Trump is the absolute pinnacle of what that would be. So mm -hmm. when you think Trump, that's the avatar of like, that's the ideal entrepreneurial 
mindset, okay, and you need to have a component of that. I'm not like Trump, but maybe I have about 5% of that type of personality type inside of me, which is what has made me successful as an entrepreneur. I just was watching CNN before I jumped on with you. <laughs> and, you know, and Trump was like, yeah, everything's great. No prid quo quo. Um, none of this is happening. And uh, you're all idiots if you believe it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And he just believes it. He's just like, listen, it's awesome. Uh, everything's going to be great. And, and, and it's, and there's no issue here. This is going to happen. No worries. There's no problem whatsoever. We're going to, you know, we're going to succeed. Being an executive is a different, is a different thing. Um, it's almost the polar opposite. It's like, well, what is the problem? How can we solve the problem? Uh, it let's, let's reduce everyone's expectations inside of the organization internally. And then let's really try to figure out how can we build a scalable organization long-term. So that's the big lesson. Difference between entrepreneurship and being an executive, two different things. My transfer took a very long time. Yeah. I really like that you mentioned about this thing particularly because first of all, I think this is super relevant for startups and companies everywhere, either your remote companies or not. And second of all, it's especially relevant to remote uh, companies because it literally related to delegating and giving trust, right? And Mm -hmm. your example, I actually find Donald Trump as an app comparison, not in a political sense, but in the fact that this is someone that uh, do everything alone doesn't have less trust than anyone. Yeah. So, and this is the same thing that I talked about with Mark Fagiano, the CEO of Textjar in the very first episode of this podcast. So Textjar is like hundred plus companies right now. And mm-hmm. he specifically mentioned about that growing pains when you have to realize that you need to trust people more and delegate people more and everything is slower. It's not as fast you want because you cannot do it yourself. Right. So these transition, I really like how to, how you frame it from entrepreneurial to executive Uh, for you uh, specifically, what were the most um, painful period of that transition? Uh, Is there any deliberate thing that you have to taught yourself? So number one, one, uh, one of the things that you'll be able to kind of look at, there's a, um, there's a phenomenon called the Dunbar's number. Okay. Uh, so Dunbar is a, a evolutionary anthropologist who saw the maximum amount of people that you can know personally. Mm-hmm. And he said it's at minimum 100 and at maximum 150. So the Dunbar number is basically 150. Uh, So if you are around the 100 person mark and you're moving towards 150, you are basically surpassing the Dunbar number and therefore you are forced to be an executive. Don't suggest that you will be able to know everyone, you know, by their first name as an example and know all of their history. So you need to kind of let go of that. I know when we were around... 30 or 40 people, I knew everybody in the company. I knew them by first name. I was able to chat with them, you know, maybe once a month, realistically, through a Zoom call, as an example. Now I can't do that. And I have people that I personally manage, and then those people manage other people. Yeah. Um, Now, in terms of just becoming an executive, 
Um, I would say the first, I would say probably it actually boils down to two big pieces. Uh, number one, you cannot do the hiring personally. So you need to actually build a really solid HR and recruitment team inside of your organization. Uh, so we have people, our director of HR understands the soul of the company and understands who is the right culture fit for us and who isn't. So we hire almost entirely based off culture. So before we see a resume, we actually do a culture fit interview before we even know whether they're qualified. And someone could be the absolute perfectly qualified candidate, but we've found long-term that hiring the perfectly qualified candidate that doesn't fit inside of our company culture will end up in failure anyways. So we just don't even tempt ourselves with that. We just say, we don't even wanna look at your resume, we just want to look at what your culture fit is. Uh, and then the second thing is building operational processes inside of your organization. So that's a particularly relevant um, uh, component for remote teams because, you know, if I was in your office right now and I was a new recruit and I was trying to figure out how to do something, I could just turn to you and say, hey, how do I do this? But we're remote, right? You're in you're in Taiwan, I'm in Canada, uh, and we are way, you know, we're worlds away. Uh, how do we actually communicate that type of knowledge? Well, process documentation. So basically that means recording everything that is written down, sorry, recording everything that you do in the company, writing it down, um, digitizing it, and then making it shareable across wherever you wanna go. So Google Docs is a really good place to start. Uh, we use Trainual who uh, was actually at Running Remote last year. They're a fantastic product to really kind of take all of those repositories and put them in one place. Uh, another suggestion that I would make to people is if you go to about.gitlab.com slash handbook, uh, GitLab is a remote first company. They have a thousand remote employees and they have a 3,200 page handbook on how they run their business. So everything that you could possibly know about GitLab is there and it's entirely open source and you can actually fork that Git repository. Oh, okay. You can build your own and then you can just edit it for your own purposes. So it's a really great place to start. Doing processes is like doing your taxes. No one really wants to do it. Um, so this gives you 90% of that framework and just edit it a little bit. So Dimitri, uh, if you go to the YouTube channel, you know, he encourages people to actually steal his his handbook because he thinks that that's really going to help remote companies, you know, get to the next level. Um, so for the listeners probably can't see it because it's an audio only podcast, but Liam kind of just nodding like a bobblehead about for everything you say, because uh, it's uh, the, the thing you say about hiring process, basically those things that come over and over again um, in my interviews with other um, startup, remote startup leaders, because that's basically boils down those two. Like you have to spend um, the the energy, the time, and the effort to create great processes and well, hire. And, and let me well. get a little bit more specific on that because I think if you're if you're thinking about entrepreneurship, yeah, um, this is a this is actually one of the biggest problems that an entrepreneur mindset will not understand, and an executive will. When you're an entrepreneur, you are doing everything on your own. So you're doing all of these things. You, you are touching all of these things. You're like the archetypal micromanager, 
right? Even if you have people in your company, you're basically still kind of like really directly overseeing what they're doing. An executive, however, the person that you're hiring is entirely responsible for that domain. So if you hire a customer success manager and you're going to be able to build out his customer success department and you have five or six customer success reps underneath them, you cannot understand the details of that department to anywhere near as well as the customer success manager. And you must be able to give up that responsibility in order to succeed. However, entrepreneurs very rarely want to give up that responsibility. So you can either be what I kind of call like a starter or like a zero to one guy that can take a company from, let's say, like zero to like a million, two million ARR within a year. If you're talking about the SaaS world. Yeah. Or you can be someone that is an executive that goes from that two million to 10 million to 20 million level. Now, the actual two million to 10 million to 20 million level is way more complicated um, than the first stage. So yeah. it's actually a year to build a million dollar business today than it is to build a 20 million dollar business today but if you want to be both you got to basically let the entrepreneur die unfortunately which is very very difficult for people giving up complete control and just saying hey you drive i'm bringing up customer success because i just hired a customer success manager and uh, i'm getting all of these different reports from different departments saying hey um she's doing this and she's doing that and she's doing that and I'm just saying, well, she's in charge of customer success. So mm -hmm. talk to her about it. It's not my responsibility, mm -hmm. right? And then you basically need to be able to create very clear measures for success or failure for that particular individual. So you're basically at this point, no longer, you are no longer doing any of the work inside of the organization. Your job is to measure the success of the direct reports that report to you, mm -hmm. which is really like, yeah, it, it took me years to really figure this out. And I don't really know even if I've completely figured it out at this point. Um, like with running remote, as an example, we're, you know, we're a relatively small team. Igor is in charge of running that entire um, conference from beginning to end. I think there's about four or five people <clears throat> on that team. Mm -hmm. But there, I still jump into the perspective of micromanaging. Yeah. Right. Being able to say, hey, well, you know what? I think that we should be using um, we should be using Tito, which is a ticketing app that we that we're deploying this year instead of building our own ticketing system, because building our own ticketing system is way too complicated. And I don't want to put the dev hours into building it and it'll fall apart anyways. And then Igor directly disagrees. We have a discussion about it. And then and, and I feel right. But maybe I'm not right because. I don't know the situation on the ground. That's a perfect example of a failure of an executive because I'm pulling myself back into entrepreneur mode. I absolutely agree with everything you said. And thank you so much for being candid with the, the real life example that you shared. I also want to add like the executive role when it comes to remote teams, you are even like the importance is, has, is amplified because you literally cannot talk to your ex executive like face to face. The difficulty of being an executive is just uh, a bit more with mm -hmm. remote teams. So again, th this is fantastic. Uh, I can talk about this uh, for days. Um, by the way, how big is your team now? How many people is in your team now? 
We've got about 100 people in the team. So we're just entering that Dunbar number that I had mentioned earlier. And it is, uh, it's definitely scary. So I used to really try to know everyone on a personal level. <clears throat> and now I know that that's not what I should be doing. Um, because it's just physically impossible for my brain to understand those many people at one time. Right. Um, so as your team is growing, like 100 is, is, is really a big number, right? And mm -hmm. what were the mistakes you've made as a leader of a distributed team? It can be like process-related or, you know, um, it, it can be process-related or human um, interaction-related that you made. And how did it change your leadership style? So I think uh, one of the biggest problems that we had was me and Rob, my co-founder for Time Doctor, we are both non-technical founders. And that was, we made a lot of mistakes inside of the software that we should have, we should have solved much earlier on. So about a year ago, approximately, we had uh, the software was down for two days. And uh, for a time tracking product, that's a really wow. big problem. And we lost about a million in ARR, <clears throat> annual recurring revenue, from that downtime. And, you know, we, we, we tried to apologize to customers as much as humanly possible. But, you know, if the product isn't working properly, uh, customers should be able to leave. That's the beauty of SaaS is if at any point you're not happy, you can go. And it creates a really good relationship between the customer and the product because if the product isn't you know, doing what it should be doing, the customer can leave. And then in exchange, the company ends up getting really reliable revenue uh, from all of the customers. So yeah, we lost, we lost a lot of money on that and uh, we've completely rebuilt our tech stack from the ground up, which wow. took us out of the game for six to 12 months. We, we have not shipped anything new for 12 months, right? We basically just kind of completely rebuilt the software from the ground up. And uh, now we're at a point where we can just start building new features, but technological debt. Um, if I had to kind of boil it down to one singular thing that we that we should have done that we did not do is we should have paid our tech debt and we did not. And so that's a big one. Um, secondarily, I would say getting really good coaches and mentors in earlier on. So me and my co-founder are very different in our personality types. I like to talk to people to get answers. And Rob likes to read. Ah, so he I likes see. to get his information from like blogs and, and podcasts and these types of things. Whereas I like to talk to real people and two different approaches. Um, don't know which one is correct, but I know that <clears throat> I like doing the human thing and he doesn't. So that's another example of something that I would have probably changed very early on is I would have built a much more hybridized model of the way that we pull in information and we process information because me and Rob are coming from very different places, which is actually good, but we needed to make it a lot more equal and it would usually end up being kind of an issue of conflict because 
he would read a blog post. He would read a blog post about customer success, and he would say, "Here's how you do it." And then I would go and talk to five customer success managers, and I would get a completely different perspective. So that's an example of how we would be making very critical decisions based off of that, and and that would end up uh, resulting in conflict. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, tech tech debt, it's real. You know, you don't think that you have to pay it off, and it's kind of almost like playing Russian roulette. Because you can just say, I remember about three months before our horrible collapse,、uh, I sat around the room in one of our team retreats, and I said, "So it looks like we're not stable.、Uh, we're getting too many customers in, and we're having stability issues. Where are we at?" And I was guaranteed that we were going to be stable for the next year. And three months later, we went down for two days, and it, you know, it was one of those things like、yeah. we fire up one percent. Of the servers, and they just get overloaded instantly. Like it was basically like our own internal denial of service attack, because、mm-hmm. we were just everyone was trying to log in all the time. Yeah, this is this is super tricky when it comes to remotely. So,、um, especially when it comes to technical debt and communication debt. So,、um, you know, before I started the whole podcast, so I asked our、uh, director of engineering. Like just you know just casual chat you know、uh, I asked him like what do you want to know about hundred、um, percent distributed、um, engineering team like do you, because we actually like hybrid team like half、uh, co-located and half remote.、Mm-hmm. Um, one of his curiosity is that how do hundred percent、um, distributed team manage communication debt? So、mm-hmm. when you don't have a good process established. There'll be some kind of、uh, time lag or、uh, communication that, which sometimes when you're 100% distributed team, it always happens. But you need、right. to minimize that by having a great process. Actually, I talked to、um, the VP of Engineering of Help Scout, Megan Chinberg,、mm-hmm. a while ago,、yep. and she said that there's always be a time lag, but you have to have remote first mindset and you have to、uh, minimize those、uh, errors and try to not, you know, putting fires out all the time. You ha- it has to be calm. So I was thinking, like in the situation where you don't have a great communication process within your engineering team, and these like the technical debt issue happen, that it's really, real, really scary, honestly, because probably when it's the system is down, and then you don't really know what's next.、Uh, that that that、right. is super scary, actually. Yep.、Me. Well, so、uh, I think that brings up the argument of asynchronous versus synchronous communication,、mm-hmm. and basically the two philosophies、yep. that are. Now in remote work, and it was one of the last debates that we had at last year's running remote with the CEO of Help Scout and the CEO of、uh, Doist,、mm-hmm. Amir, the Todoist task management app. So Amir also runs a competitive product called Twist to Slack,、uh, and pretty much everybody probably knows what Slack is. But Twist is like Slack, but it is designed from an asynchronous mindset as opposed to a synchronous mindset, and Even when we looked at the failure of this two-day collapse that we had inside of Time Doctor, one of the very interesting situations that was happening is our server admin guy was getting on a plane、uh, for a nine-hour flight to Tokyo. So the system went down, and then within an hour, he was on a plane, and he was on he was in Tokyo. So he had no access to the internet. During that time, and when he had landed, he actually had said, "Everyone, don't touch this because you've broken it more than you've fixed it."
So it really reinforced what I like to call sacred knowledge inside of the organization, which you should try to get out of your organization as quickly as humanly possible. So if there's only a singular person that can do a singular task, that is a failure point that can destroy your business. So you need to constantly audit your organization and say to yourself, where is their sacred knowledge? So I'll give you another example. Um, Rob, my co-founder, who is the CEO of the company, has a Google Doc. Mm -hmm. And the Google Doc is sent to me and our product manager. And um, the password is given to his wife and to one other person that we don't even know. And uh, if he were in a car accident or something like that, or if, you know, if, he's, if he's dead or if he's brain dead, then like, you know, what are all the passwords, access points, all that kind of stuff that we would need to be able to get access to. And that kind of came up based off of our auditing of where is that sacred knowledge located and how can we unlock it? And there's some sacred knowledge, like as an example, um, that Rob has in his head that he doesn't want other people to know in the organization, um, but he needs to make sure that he's written it down somewhere so that if he is gone, there might be you know, we can, we can grab that information. So yeah, sacred knowledge, super important inside of remote organizations. In terms of just communication sync, um, I would say asynchronous makes happier employees, synchronous makes faster moving companies. So you need to be able to measure your, your priorities based off of that perspective. I have a hierarchy of communication which is basically in-person beats video, video beats audio, audio beats instant messaging, and instant messaging beats email. So if I've sent 10 instant messages back and forth through Slack, as an example, about a particular issue, and we haven't solved the problem, I try to push it to a phone call as quickly as humanly possible, preferably a video phone call, so that we can really work out the nonverbal communication that might be occurring on a video call versus... Yep audio call. We're doing this on a video call right now. I can see you. You can see me. You know, if there's questions that you ask me that maybe I don't feel comfortable with, you might not be able to see that through audio, but you would be able to see it through video. And maybe you would redirect that conversation somewhere else. So once you have all of that synced up and you know how your communication works, then you want to take what is all of that communication that's currently happening and you want to try to pull it into process documentation mm -hmm. as much as possible. So once something really should turn into a process, I have the, uh, basically my perspective is the rule of three. The first time you do something, you should not process document it. The second time that you do the same thing, you should think about how you're going to process document, document it. And then the third time you should do it. The reason why is on the hundredth time, you forget all the small details connected to that particular process. Uh, and then on the first time, of course, you're not actually going to be able to know what you're doing. So the third time is usually a pretty good time to kind of process document that type of thing. Put it in Trainual, put it in a Google Doc, put it in GitLab, um, and then just it's there. And if someone wants to query it at some point, they can. Uh, this is a great approach when it comes to uh, documenting. I, I really love the three steps. Um, so I also talked to the founder of, you remember Remo? They mm -hmm. were they're also the um Hoi this yeah Hoi I talked to Hoi in our podcast, so he has a really smart approach on it. Okay, for listeners, if this is the first time you listen to this podcast, okay, listen to this because it's really smart. Okay, 
So he's on the actually still on the verge of transitioning from entrepreneur to executive. Like he wants to, I think he will be really good at it, like because he really likes creating process and stuff. But there's one hack that he does to like to kill two birds in one. So so basically, when he does something, and for example, um, doing uh, creating a zap, we're using Zapier. Like the total mm-hmm. Zapier, right? He will record it and he will talk over it. Like mm. basically, this is what I do next, blah, blah, blah. And then he'll pass it to uh, his team member and that person either will do the, the task and document it. Mm. So basically, it saves the time of the CEO or CMO and whatnot. And he's using it, he's teaching it. And it's, it's pretty easy, right? When you talk, like you mentioned. It's for, for us, like to hash things out, it's easier to video call. But he does that and he passes it to someone, hey, please create the written documentation for this. So that's sacred knowledge there is out forever. I think this is right. super smart. I told this story a couple of times in our episodes. So if you're listening to this and to figure out, uh, just try it. it. It's really good. So We use a tool mm-hmm. called Jing for that, uh, which is really great. It's a little tiny kind of like orange circle on the top right-hand corner of my screen. And at any point I click that and it creates a five-minute video that turns into a bitly link. Oh, so that oh, that's just, interesting. It, it into, in, instantly uploads, right? So the moment that you've completed the video, it just uploads and then you've got that as a bit.ly link and then you can put that inside of a process doc. There's a bunch of apps out there. Yep. We just like Jing. Yeah, so right. So um, I think this is a good segue, like the whole written documentation thing. This is a good segue for this one thing I want to ask you about, so-called Liam's operating manual. Um, oh. Yeah, so <laughs> I heard you mention this yeah. on your other interview on the, uh, the Pesto podcast. So I'd love to dive a bit more uh-huh. into this, right? Um, so I've heard about this concept a couple of times. Sure. So I'd love to um, hear from you, like, how does it work on your side? Yeah, so the, the document is called Blueprint to Liam and His Weird Little Quarks. <laughs> and it is a, a one-page document. And it has uh, eight tenets of who I am as a person. So as an example, like I am an ENTP, which is a um, inspired innovator, motivated to find new solutions to intellectually challenging problems. ENTPs enjoy playing with ideas and especially like to banter with others. This is the Myers-Briggs Basically, test, yeah? This is the Myers-Briggs test. So I said, Google ENTP personality types to learn more about me. Uh, the second tenant is decide. Decisions over options is always my preferred way of working. If you have to bring me options, tell me which one you're leaning towards. If you aren't leaning towards an option, then you haven't thought about it long enough. So these are just very direct ways of me communicating who I am as a person and not necessarily communicating the positive aspects of me as a person. And that's really important to be able to um, to, to mention for a direct report. So this document goes to anyone that I, that is directly reporting to me and I give them that document and it came from me talking to three of my closest friends and saying, could you tell me what you would say to someone that's just about to work for me on how to make sure that they can get the most out of me as a manager? and be very honest. And you need your friends who will actually tell you that you're full of shit if you are full of shit. Like yeah. you need to be able to know, 
as an example, I don't really like um, I don't really like people giving me qualitative answers to to problems. So, if you say, you know, I th we should build this feature, why? Well, because I think it's a good idea. Wrong answer for me. Uh, that's a really bad way to communicate with me. What you should be saying is, there are these 17 customers that represent 1,428 seats that represent this much revenue that want this feature. Here's the documentation for it inside of Intercom as an example. This is what we should be doing next. Uh, that's the way that I usually like to be worked with. I have a thesis statement at the very end of this document, which is, I value decision making above all else. I'd rather you make the wrong decision than none at all. And that's actually a really difficult thing for a lot of employees to be able to get their heads around. So uh, it's just the way that I like to work. And yeah. so it's just my particular kind of working style. I have a, uh, my general mindset is don't ask me what to do. Tell me what you did. Yeah. Yeah. You should, if you're asking me what to do, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this document gives clarity. Um, do you update this document from time to time or does your direct report sometimes update it? Does it make sense? Probably they said, hey, so I think I want to add this. Yeah, yeah we've thought about it. Um, I, I, the first time that I did this exercise, it took me a couple days and I literally just had a couple friends of mine out for drinks and was just like writing oh, okay. stuff down. Um, and a lot of this stuff, in this exercise, it's going to be a very difficult for you, particularly if you're an entrepreneurial type, egotistical, somewhat predisposed to sociopathic behavior, um, these types of things, to take that feedback what because were the you most, have to okay. put your ego aside, right? Like you have to yeah. be like, well, you know what? You're a bit of an asshole because of X, Y, Z, right? And it's like, hmm, okay, do you guys agree with that? Yep. I, I put it in a document because that is upon. Right. Um, what were the most surprising uh, thing that uh, is written there that you never thought about before? Like, um, I think it was, um, boy, what was the most surprising one? That make you think, oh, um, I didn't know I was like this. You know, I'm a starter and I'm not a finisher. So what I mean by that is, um, I'll give you running remote as a perfect example. So Igor is a finisher. I'm a starter, which is actually a really good team to have. So when we first started running remote as an idea, I said, okay, well, uh, let's just, let's just see what happens. Let's, let's throw this website up and see whether or not anyone wants to buy tickets. And Igor and he's definitely evolved past this point, but he said, well, you know, what do you mean? We, we got to pay, we got to get like $20,000 together to be able to build a website and put together the ticketing system and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And then within about three hours, I bought the domain. I, our AWS server was too slow because I needed access. I just got mm -hmm. a GoDaddy server and I put together, I bought a $20 WordPress theme which is actually the same general design that we use today. Right. Uh, it's the same framework. And then I put up a, um, I put up a, uh, what's the ticketing system that everyone uses right now? Some kind of general ticketing system that I could get off the shelf instantaneously. Mm -hmm. And I put it all together. I put up some speakers that I knew would, uh, that already said yes. And, uh, and then put it up and I said, okay, website's done. Let's run some traffic to it. 
that's an example of a starter. Yeah. But in terms of getting the small details oriented, in terms of like figuring out, well, let's negotiate with the AV company. Do we need this extra monitor? Do we need this extra camera? Do we, you know, how do we do the post-production? All those types of things. That is very difficult for me to do. Uh, I get, it doesn't excite me and it drags on. Whereas someone like Igor really likes that type of work. So that was the difference. The difference between being a starter and a finisher. I thought maybe I was a finisher. I wasn't a finisher. I was definitely a starter. Yeah. I can see how that feedback can be surprising or probably even hurtful, especially when you're entrepreneur type. Like if people say to you, probably not the exact word, but you're a starter, but you're not a finisher. Especially if you're an entrepreneur that has been doing a lot of stuff solo in your whole career, it's probably like, what the fuck? Something like that. Everyone's got to finish. Yeah. yeah. Like everyone be a finisher when you're when you're an entrepreneur and it's like yes i did finish things i hated finish things finishing things it was like grinding my teeth you know all the time it was really difficult for me so don't do that you know just focus on being the starter that's going to be a lot better for you mm-hmm. awesome so liam um so i want to segue more we've been talking about the whole runner remote thing so let's just go down sure. to the, the the conference um can you tell me a bit more? Why did you start running remote in the first place? What was the goal? So I had gone to a couple conferences that were supposedly about remote work, but they weren't necessarily about remote work. They were about a phenomenon that probably if you're in the remote workspace, you know about, which is called digital nomadism. And those are people that basically work from their laptops and they constantly travel. Yep. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like the four-hour work week mindset. Um, by the way, that doesn't exist uh, at all. Show, show me one person that's like working four hours a week and is making over a million dollars a year, and I'll show you a liar. Oh yeah, I'm gonna tag this uh, to Tim Ferriss. By the way, I'm gonna tag Tim Ferriss on this. Sure, yeah, go for <laughs> yeah. it. I like there, there is no that does not exist. Yeah, um, I, I, I think I, he I also said that it doesn't exist. Like he will, he will be. I, I remember I was listening to his podcast. He said like, no, that's not the point. The point is. You have to work yourself until you get the point. Yeah. Anyway, I was like, I mean, Tim Ferriss yeah. works 60 hours a week. True. He's a workaholic. Yeah. So yeah. there, I mean, it, he's not, he's not taking his own medicine, frankly. Right. Um, so went to all these conferences and they really weren't about what I wanted to learn about, which was, well, how do we go from hundred to 150 people? How do we build a customer support team? How do we build a development team that works? Um, how do we, get inspired by remote companies that are really at the forefront and scaling to, you know, extreme levels. We had Marcy Murray from Shopify, director of support of Shopify that went from zero to 2000 remote rep. You know, those are the things that I really wanted to learn about. So I realized at that point that um, that's what I wanted to do. And uh, that conference didn't exist anywhere else. So I spoke to a couple friends of mine. Um, Amir actually was probably one of the people that really started the conference out and made it real because he said he would come and he would get a couple of his friends to come. Amir is the CEO of Doist? Doist, yes. So he, um, he still today is our customer avatar. So if we are unsure about a particular speaker, we will ask Amir, would you like to see this person speak at running remote? And if he says no, they're out um, because we just follow that singular individual. In essence, what we're trying to target is someone that's maybe two to three years back from where Amir is right now. Amir is about 100 people. 
So when Amir was at like 30 remote staff, that's really the perfect founder. Like that's the person that we want at the conference. Someone who's building a remote first team or someone who's interested in building a remote first team and may have an on-premise team in office team um, at this point. That's, Mm -hmm. that's the archetypal customer. Uh, You'll never have a talk about travel hacking or how to build an Amazon FBA business or anything like that. We're really just focused on basically how do we build and scale remote teams? Got it. And so I was always amazed by how do you how you guys manage to pull the whole event while uh, you guys are 100% distributed team. So mm-hmm. I, I believe it's not an easy task to just do all of that with you know invite speakers and range uh, accommodations and whatnot. Um, as an organizer or co-organizer, uh, what is the most difficult thing or the top two or three difficult things that you need to do to organize this offline event from all your so, lives, yeah. Yeah, so I can kind of go into that in a little bit of a deeper way, I think. Um, I don't have that much experience. We've only done two and we're doing our third one. So take that with a grain of salt. But there's a lot of things that I didn't know about running conferences that I now do know that are not written down anywhere because no one really wants to tell you that these are the real rules of the game. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a black hole between 300 and 1,000 attendees, as an example. So up to 300 attendees, you can have a very profitable conference based just off of ticket sales, and you're not really going to get those many sponsors. Interesting. 1,000 plus people, you will get really good sponsors And um, you don't really need to bother about generating significant amounts of revenue from your ticket sales. But in between 300 to 1,000 people, there's a black hole because sponsors won't give you the big bucks. They won't pay 100 grand for a sponsorship. But then it's also a little too big for people. A lot of the attendees will say, ah, this is getting too big or, you know, this is getting too big of an event, that kind of a thing that it's lacking the intimacy. So you need to get either above or below that hole as quickly as humanly possible. And so that's where we're currently at, uh, which is actually really problematic. Um, (laughs) Another thing that, you know, not many people tell you about is most revenue is coming from sponsors. It's not coming from ticket sales. So, um, the sponsors are the ones that are really the each running remote ticket ended up costing us $980. So it cost wow. us to, to give you, to, to sell you a ticket cost us $980 and the ticket prices float, you know, early birds are like $500 up until about a thousand dollars. So actually we only break even on the thousand dollar price point. And we lose money everywhere else. But can we charge fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars for a ticket? Maybe not. Um, you know that that's a little bit more of a of a significant ask for people. Yep. So that's an interesting phenomenon where I didn't know that this is the way it worked. And in reality, it is really making sure that you have some fantastic sponsors that are able to um, work with you, and then getting fantastic customers for those sponsors to the conference. That's mm-hmm. basically the game mm-hmm. of running sponsors now uh, or conferences. Outside of that, just a whole bunch of logistics. Um, you know, we had particularly in Bali, 
I remember the first year of running remote, we had a, um, we had had all these cars that were stationed around the, the conference area and around the speakers area. And we needed to, I needed to get 20 speakers to the conference and it was eight 30. And I believe we started at nine 30 and there were no cars. There were no drivers around. They basically had forgotten about us as the speakers, which are really important people to get to the conference. So I ended up finding a bus and I asked this guy uh, that was, that, that had the bus. I said, you know, can you take us 15 minutes this way to the event? And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. We can't, you know, very um, Indonesian polite way of saying, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a very unique way of, of, of apologizing in Indonesia, which I, I can't really recreate, but it's got a certain flavor to it. Mm-hmm. And then um, I said, okay, how about a hundred us? And he's like, get on in. And it literally, he stole the bus from his boss uh, because he's going to pick up a hundred bucks. Right. Which is, which is big money in Indonesia. Yep. And, so uh, we were able to, I basically stole a bus to be able to get the speakers to the event. And then he, you know, he, he zipped back and then supposedly he got yelled at by his boss. Yeah. Um, so those are examples of things that just like logistical nightmares. The very first session at running remote, um, we had the screen that was fuzzing out. And there was like this fuzzing out of the screen. And we found out we had done an entire year or sorry, an entire day of work the day before, none of that problem presented itself. And then we realized that we were using the internal hotel's power system for audio, but we were using our power systems for video. And there was an electromagnetic conflict between those two power sources, which was damaging the equipment and creating this kind of like uh, static in between those two sources. And we had just flipped those, th- those power systems because we said to ourselves, oh, well, if we're going to use, we should use the hotel's power systems because they're offering to give it to us for free. Right. These are examples of things that just like, they're, they're nightmares from a logistics perspective, but they're going to happen. And I've just realized at this point that um, hiring really good professionals that have done, you know, 40 conferences before, as an example, is the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, once you can afford it, do that. Uh, you know, we didn't do that. Everything was run on our own. And, and we also, uh, another variable, which is interesting in Bali and Indonesia, is um, me, I was working mm-hmm. in the back, right? Uh, I did not have a work visa for Indonesia. So we were always terrified that someone from, you know, immigration was going to come in and shut us down or, you know, ask everyone, are are you all Indonesian citizens or do you have a work visa? Those are things that, you know, just sort of you think about when you're, when you're running a conference in a developing country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want, I want to let you know, like as an Indonesian, like we are pretty lax when when it comes to that. Like apparently, yeah. yeah, um, Especially when the hundred dollars bus thing, that is very hilarious because uh, yeah, that's, that's it. That's Indonesia. I know. Um, yeah, I really can tell, like, uh, we're on a video call right now. I can't tell from your expression that you're literally, you basically was want to tell me, I shit you not that these things happen. But I just wanted to let you know, like, like it was like semi-renting. But I just wanted to let you know that um, I attended 
uh, as I mentioned before, I attended the um, running room conference in Bali this year. I think it is an amazing conference. Uh, that okay, the running remote conference this year is actually where I start pitching um, my podcast to um, to some of the people there. So I talked to uh, Nick Francis, actually, who want to be on a podcast. And then when I followed with him, uh, he basically recommended uh, their VP of engineering to talk to. That's one. So I made connections. Got it. Uh, yep. Andrew Warner was there. Um, yep. Andrew Warner gave me advice on how to start a podcast. Uh, talked to Andres Klinger, which had a killer keynote on the, um, on the conference. And it's on YouTube right now. Actually, I put it on the show notes um, for people to see. Again, I just want to you, you guys did an, an amazing mm-hmm. job, and I believe that you'll do the same um, next year. Um, so, so I want to close it with a the last question. I know you're running out of time now. So, you've been running um, this like, conference two years in a row now, right? And next year will be the third year. What are the most valuable things that you learn from? the speakers or just from interacting with the attendees? Mm. I'll tell you the thing that surprised me the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been, I've been able to interact with the absolute top of remote founders on planet earth, right? Like running remote is the definitive place. If you're a remote founder, you're going to probably be there more than any other place um, on planet earth. So it's this really great opportunity where all of these thought leaders can come together and can not only share best practices, but also talk about the future of remote work as well, which is very, very exciting. It's a phenomenon that's just exploding right now in, in, on planet earth. And here's the thing that blew me away. When I actually sat down and asked them about their playbook, so how do you run a remote business? How do you run a remote business? How do you run a remote business? They all gave me really different answers. So one person would say, oh, video calling, it's the only way that we should interact. And then someone else would say, no, video calling is really stupid. Uh, you shouldn't be doing video calling. It's a really inefficient use of your time. Uh, someone else would say, you know what? It's got to be asynchronous communication. That is the only way that you can build a remote company. And then someone else is like, no, you've only got to do synchronous communication. Um, The more synchronous communication you have, the better. So it was interesting to see such huge differences between all of these equally successful individuals. And I came to an interesting conclusion, which is because remote work is such a huge productivity boost and such an increase to people's businesses. I actually think almost everyone is doing it wrong. And it doesn't matter if everyone's doing it wrong because the overall productivity gains from being remote means it's a net win. So it's going to be very exciting over the next three to five years, I believe, because hopefully running remote and a bunch of other partners as well, will be able to start to build that playbook and build best practices into an organization. So do video, are video calls the way to do it? Who knows? Did, have we done some really good quantitative studies on this to be able to figure that out? Not yet. Uh, team retreats, company retreats, do they increase productivity? We do them. Why do we do them? Because 
Amir and Joel and a bunch of other people have done it. And we just think, oh, well, if they've done it, we should do it. That's the only reason why we've done it. And we like it. (laughs) So it's just like, maybe that doesn't produce a positive ROI at all. Maybe that's, and maybe we're just burning that cash. Who knows? Yeah. You need to be able to start to do the work to be able to actually see what those results are. So that's what I'm really excited. What, what blew me away was no one knows what they're doing. And what is also exciting me is that no one knows what they're doing because once we know what to do, it's going to be even better. Yeah, that is interesting. It's also in align with, so I talked to Hidden Shah a while ago Mm -hmm. and his message basically just figure out what works for you and do it. Um, So I want to share my learning. This one thing that surprised me that I actually never thought about before I attend Running Remote Mm -hmm. is the fact that a remote work opens up possibilities for people around the world, no matter which country you are, especially people with, um, from a more unfortunate background, you know, with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So in the beginning of the Run Remote Conference, you, um, you, was, you, you were the opening keynote speaker, and then you shared mm-hmm. the video of this uh, young gentleman, I think Fahim. Fahim. I think Fahim, I think it's Fahim, and he's based in Bangladesh. And he has some um, disability. And that video shares about how he is able to find remote jobs by doing designs online through a uh, freelancing platform. And that actually struck me the fact that, oh, yeah, we're talking about you know, remote work process like as a company. And you know how the remote works being good productivity, but these are the thing that um, we actually never, never put a deep thought into, like how remote works actually m- makes it. Uh, this sounds so cheesy, almost drinking our cup, but this, in a way, it does makes a uh, better world. So, a couple of days ago, we. I read this um, article shared by Jennifer Aldrich, which is a community manager in Envision, about how mm-hmm. when it comes to people with disabilities, it's it's not just a perk, it's everything. Yeah. It, it allows them to do their creative work. It allows them to feel empowered and so on. So these are the, the one thing that I took away from the running remote that uh, I will actually uh, never forget. So again, thank mm-hmm. you for that. Yeah, um, that's perfect. I, I think that to me, remote work gives employers and employees the opportunity to find the best of each other. Mm-hmm, yeah. And that's something that is such a unique opportunity that has never existed before. So whether you're in Bangladesh, Cairo, Toronto, or San Francisco, um, you're going to be able to get access to the same work opportunities. And that's never happened before that is bit that is a very unique opportunity that we've been talking about quote unquote outsourcing and globalization but only in the last few years has that actually been a real reality where someone like Fahim who has muscular dystrophy that went from literally begging in the streets of Dhaka to being a very successful designer on Fiverr which is the platform and, and upwork that he works off of there are millions of Fahims all over the world and yeah. they're able to get access to these work opportunities and they just would not have been able to do it 
uh, previously. So I had mentioned at the end of the, uh, my, my initial address, which was the people in that room are really the drop in the ocean, but we're creating ripple effects that will be able to hopefully positively impact people like Fahim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. Um, I also, this is also something that we try to um, promote in our company, in ARCs, because our mission is basically we want to connect talented software developers, no matter who you are, with uh, opportunities uh, around the world. Because mm-hmm. uh, I remember Andres Klinger also said that in his speech, like international talents uh, deserve international um, compensation. So that's the mm-hmm. great. So we really believe that. So that's why we're trying to um, do it in ARC. And hopefully we can always get better at it day by day. All right. Um, so Liam, um, so we're near the end of the conversation. So um, where can people learn about you about running remote online and can you share a bit about the next running remote event? Sure. So uh, next running remote event is going to be in Austin, Texas. Uh, so it's going to be just like Bali, except there's going to be barbecue, <laughs> which will be very nice. And it's, um, it's going to be just like the other two running remotes only bigger and better. So we are going to have, uh, Wade, who is the, founder of Zapier. Um, he's going to be coming. We've got uh, Lori McLeese, who is, who is head of HR Automatic, which is the company that runs WordPress. Uh, they have about 1,500 remote employees. John Ekman from um, Ten Up, massive agency, entirely remote. Sarah Sutton, who's the founder of FlexJobs. Um, bunch of other fantastic speakers that are going to be coming as well. You can just go to the website to check it out. And you know, that's, that's going to be that side of it. If you want to get in contact with me, one of the best places I believe that you could go is YouTube. So if you go to youtube.com slash running remote, there is going to be every, like all of our talks are up for free. So if you can't afford to come, you can come to uh, youtube.com slash running remote, check it out. And if you put in a comment, it will actually be me. I'll get back to you within about three to four hours. Amazing. Um, and also, I, want, I just wanted to, you're probably the first human in the world that compares Austin to Bali. <laughs> like, I mean, so we got a little bit of, yeah, we got a little bit of pushback on on Austin, um, we also realized connected to creating a bigger movement for uh, remote work, which is if you're not targeting the U.S. market, um, they're currently the leaders right now. So we may be back to Bali in the future, but we're going to do one yeah. in the United States to be able to activate the people in the U.S. And uh, yeah, I mean, Austin's good. Uh, we, we got some pushback and I, and to be honest with you, you know, we're going to keep a little piece of Bali, um, in Austin. So you'll just have to come to the conference to be able to find out what that is. Right. That's amazing. Oh, by the way, I think this place is excellent. It's just the comparison that I find really bizarre anyway. So, so Liam, thank you so much for your time that I really enjoyed this conversation and it's really nice to be able to tell you that, um, uh, some part of this podcast that uh, some part of the reason we launched the podcast is because we are able to connect with great people in Run Remote Conference and uh, I wish you all the best for next year's conference hopefully I can be there let's see mm-hmm. yeah yeah for sure you should definitely come yeah, yeah. thanks for having thanks for having me and 
Um, it's, it's really cool. I think that remote work is just one of those things that it's incredibly exciting. And it's not just kind of work perk. It's a movement that's really starting to happen. So uh, I'm very happy that you guys are, are in it as well and helping you spread the word. Yeah, awesome. Okay. Again, Liam, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that's it for another episode of Outside the Valley brought to you by ARC. We created this podcast with the hope that in each episode, you can learn something new from other remote startup people. So if you have any feedback or suggestions, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at jovian at arc.dev. It's J-O-V-I-A-N at A-R-C dot D-E-V. Or you can find us on Twitter at arc.dev. See you next week with another episode of Outside the Valley and ciao. Right. So if you want to swear, feel free. And never, no, no, oh, no, yes. one has, no one has ever sweared before, which is actually weird because oh, I never maybe said, I'll be the first. I never said like you cannot swear here. Uh, the worst is like the shit, but it's just like, eh. <laughs>